This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology, and Director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also Affiliated Professor of Spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I'm so excited because guess what I get to tell Dan? I went on a, well, it wasn't really a race, a fun run All last right. weekend. Non-runner nice. runs like two, <laughs> two, and I went the wrong way, so I even did more than the two miles. <laughs> what happened with the wrong way? Did they not mark the, the course? Well, we had, it was for our parish because our parish priest, Father Mike Bradley, is a marathon runner. And as many people might know, the Chicago Marathon was last weekend. And he was running his 50th marathon. Wow. He's 70 years old, retired former associate pastor of our parish. And Runner's World magazine and all these other media were there to see our fun run, which was like a send-off to him to do um, his marathon. And he does it to raise money for our parish senior ministry. So it's, it's a great thing all around. And he prays for all these different people of the parish while he runs. So I ran Two miles. And then the, the course was marked, but it was so windy, the signs were glowing. Oh, that's so we funny. <laughs> well, for those who aren't fanatics about running, yeah, the Chicago Marathon last weekend was a world record-breaking marathon. It was very exciting for those who are into distance running and are, are watchers of the sport. Now, in, in an official capacity, an official national international race, we're 35 seconds away from a man breaking the two-hour marker, which is really People thought this was impossible. It was done on a closed track a couple of years ago in Italy. It's very exciting. It's an exciting time for running. So Heidi, you're part of that history now. Yes. Just for the record, I was not running a four-minute mile by any <laughs> stretch of the imagination, but it felt good to get out there. I don't have the knees to be a regular runner. I'm a walker. For a good cause for my parish, I'll give it a try. So I was excited to report that to you today, Dan. That's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. How about you? I'm sure you're doing more running than I have been. Yeah, less organized running. This fall, as, as listeners may have gathered from uh, some of our previous conversations, is just very busy. For folks like David and myself, just the start of an academic year is always brings with it a hectic kind of schedule and lots of demands that ebbs and flows. We're getting close to midterm break. And so it's needed for everybody, I think, students and professors alike. But uh, that means a, a lot of grading and a lot of conversations and meetings and that kind of stuff. Um, so no, I haven't run uh, a, a formal race uh, since August, but um, I was thinking this morning that fall has definitely hit the Midwest and I, I went for a run. I like to run early in the morning and fall is the best time. It's cold, but not bitterly cold and it's still kind of dark and uh, I like running 
in the morning when the sun hasn't come up or is just coming up. And there's something really nice about that. And I'm a morning person too. So I don't like running at dark at night, but in the morning it's, as the sun's coming up, it's pretty cool. So yeah, things are going well. I'm getting ready to head to Italy next week. I know that you're going to be joining me there a couple days after maybe I get there, but then linking up with the pilgrimage that I'm co-leading to Assisi in uh, Rome. So I'm excited to see you, Heidi, on the other side of the pond in person. Will this be your first time in Assisi? Yes. So I've been to Rome before. And of course, you, I'm going to do some coverage of the Synod the week after that. But I've never been to Assisi, and I'm really looking forward to joining oh, up with the awesome. folks from America and with you. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. David, how are you? What's going on? So after we got done taping for the last episode, that week, I spent the rest of the week in Princeton, New Jersey at Princeton University as a guest of the Center for Culture, Society, and Religion. And I met with their staff and talked to them about how to leverage media techniques for their graduate students. And then I had an opportunity to do a, what they call a toolkit workshop for, and I don't know the exact number that was in the room, it was about 20 or 25 graduate students from across 12 different humanities disciplines there at Princeton. And the topic that I was talking about was public scholarship as storytelling and how to utilize the techniques of narrative to take their research and make it available to larger audiences. And the report that I have gotten back from the center staff is that the graduate students are still talking about the ideas that I raised. It was a very vibrant conversation lots of really good questions, lots of really wonderful interaction. And I really enjoy doing those kinds of things because I spend a lot of my time thinking about exactly those kinds of questions, the ways in which narrative theory and the study of the structure of stories can be utilized by people that are not traditional storytellers. And so for me, it's, it's, it's a chance to really put the tires on the road and see if the car runs. And the response from the students was really energizing and letting me know that, yes, this is useful, not just to media professionals, it's useful to others across the span of the humanities. I got back from that on a Friday, and then on that Sunday, my son tested positive for COVID, and then on Tuesday, my wife tested positive for COVID. And so most of last week was spent keeping them safe and supported, but in isolation and making sure that myself and our older child did not catch COVID. And so it has been a very intense week as a result of that. And that is just reaching its end. Both my son and my wife have now tested negative. We're in the clear. My wife got Paxlovid on the first day that she tested positive. So that was a, a good thing too. But as a result of all of that, both the intense social interaction of the Princeton trip and then the intense kind of logistical interaction of taking care of my family, this week I am experiencing what I would call a kind of care hangover. So I'm understanding myself, paying attention to my inner data. I am depressed right now and I'm functioning at kind of a, a lower level of executive function. I'm still getting things done, but I'm having to be creative in when and how they get done. And I am doing a lot of self-care and a lot of just resting and taking time to, to lay down, taking time to go for a walk, take a bath, those kinds of things that just can help to keep the batteries at least in a little bit of a charged level. But I'm coming into this conversation today, having already had a period of weeping this morning. So it's just I'm in a lot of different places right now, but I'm really glad to be with the two of you. So that's how I'm doing. It's been a very full, very good couple of weeks. We're all healthy now. I am very glad, and I'm doing what it takes right now to care for myself in the midst of this. Well, I'm glad to hear that, David. I know our listeners have commented regularly to all three of us, and, and to you especially, expressing gratitude for your transparency and sharing your journey with them. And so I know they join you in solidarity as well as, as you're in this moment in your life. So we're obviously with you here to support and grateful to be with you. So thank you for letting us in on that. And yeah. I like that. I, I think I'm going to use that term care hangover because that, that seems so descriptive of what so many people face with many challenges in their lives where they're having to be a caretaker. But half your family having COVID, that's definitely a challenge. So I'm so glad they had you to care for them. And I'm so glad that you're caring for yourself now. 
Well, and one other piece of that, what listeners may not know, is that both of our kids are on the autistic spectrum. And my son, who's our younger kid, is both autistic and has ADHD. And so this week of being out of school, our son basically reconnected with his kind of joy and happy self because he was out of the routines of school and he was able to just care for himself and be in the midst of that. But this morning, as he was getting ready for school, he expressed to both my wife and I how sad he was to be going back. And so on our morning walk today, Kira and I talked about how we can be supporting him and what needs to be. We're trying in the school system as it stands to get support for both of our kids but we may need to be doing some extra things for our son to help with that. And so if folks are feeling like praying in the listening audience, that's something that folks can be praying for for my family is just especially support for our kids as they're navigating a school system that's not always the most uh, hospitable place for neurodivergent people. So that's going on. I'm I'm fascinated by what's going to be happening to the two of you as you go to Rome. Is there anything that is especially exciting or terrifying you about this trip coming up? Well, I'm probably going to wear a mask on the plane just to be on the safe side. I also have a speaking engagement at Seattle University, and I can say more about that in our next episode. But so I need to stay healthy for all this travel. So I'm terrified about going back to mask wearing, especially for a long flight. But I'm so excited to go to Assisi, but then also, obviously, all the news that's coming out of the Synod is encouraging to me. And, well, I'll not only be doing some reporting there at the end when there's a document, hopefully, and some voting about it, but also talking to some of the folks who have been there off and on and towards the end who are advocating for special attention to be paid to uh, groups who are sometimes not paid attention to. So, um, NCR has been doing a great job of covering those folks. And of course, I'm very excited to connect up with Dan, who I don't get to see in real life very often. So we have to go all the way to Italy to do that. I'd be disingenuous if I didn't say the food is what I'm excited about too, right? Oh, yeah. I should recommend too, and, and listeners may appreciate this. I, I told this to the uh, pilgrims who will be joining us over in, in Rome and then to Assisi and then back to Rome that if you are a fan of of cooking and you haven't seen uh, Stanley Tucci's program on Italian cooking on CNN, he has a one episode focused on the Umbrian region of Italy, which is where Assisi is located. And it's really fascinating to see the specialties that are there. And And I can concur, having been there several times, the food is out of this world. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I don't know if there's anything I immediately fear. I, I do travel a lot more than I, the most I think of the three of us. So I'm used to that. And I'm always hopeful that I don't come down with something. But at this stage of the game, I feel like that's oftentimes par for the course. If it isn't the travel, then it's being on a college campus where you have thousands of uh, young people that are in very close proximity to one another and, and tend to be Petri dishes. The only place I think where there's more bacteria and virus circulating is in kindergartens and, and pre-Ks. <laughs> so as my siblings who have little kids know, it's just... A, being a parent of a kid in wintertime is just a constant parade of colds and, and sniffles. So yeah, so but it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. It's exciting to be back in the Eternal City and the City of Peace. So yeah. So listeners, because we've been mentioning these trips that Heidi and Father Dan are going to be taking to Italy, uh, we are going to have a slight delay in production for the next episode. So instead of two weeks, it's going to be three weeks when we're coming back to you. But we will be coming back with an episode that is chock full of information about travels to Italy and the Synod. We know that there's a lot of breaking news right now, especially in the Middle East. As we're taping this, that is still a developing situation. We are keeping everyone on both sides in prayer and everyone here who is affected by the conflict in prayer as well. Coming up on our show today, we've got three topics. We're going to be looking at the vacancy of the Speaker of the House position and what that might mean moving forward for American legislation. We're going to be looking at the recent promulgation of the new document from Pope Francis, Laudate Deum, and we're going to be ending the show with an interview that Heidi did with Kate McElwee of the Women's Ordination Conference. So all that is coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. What are the Republicans doing? Last week, for the first time in the history of our nation, Speaker Kevin McCarthy was removed from the position of the Speaker of the House by a motion to vacate. The motion was brought by the far right wing of the Republican Party, led by Representative Matt Gates of Florida. As you may recall, McCarthy only secured the speaker position after more than a dozen failed votes last January. Now, with his removal, there is a real question, not only regarding who might follow him, but whether the Republican Party is actually in a position to elect anyone or even to govern at all. According to the Associated Press, when asked if Kevin McCarthy might be able to make a comeback, Representative Gates said, quote, I wouldn't bet on it, unquote. As of this recording, Representatives Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are both seeking the gavel of the Speaker, but it is unclear if either of them or any current Republican has enough votes at this point to win. Both Jordan and Scalise have some major obstacles to overcome. Jordan has faced allegations from former wrestlers who accused him of knowing about claims that they were inappropriately groped by an Ohio doctor during Jordan's tenure as an assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State University. Scalise is facing serious health issues, as well as allegations regarding his associations with white supremacist groups. Both Scalise and Jordan have denied the various allegations raised against them. Because the Republicans hold such a slim majority, they are considering rule changes for this election to help avoid the rounds and rounds and rounds of failed ballots that mark the start of Kevin McCarthy's time as Speaker. The clock, though, is ticking. Earlier this week, Representative Michael McCall, a Texas Republican who chairs the House Foreign Relations Committee, remarked to his colleagues during a closed-door meeting, quote, the world is watching and they are seeing a dysfunctional democracy, end quote. David, you're a self-identified former Republican. What should we be thinking about all this? Well, first of all, that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But yes, I do have that part of my history that is informing how I'm thinking about the current situation. When I was involved in Republican politics some 30 plus years ago, the thing that really animated my interest in that was the fact that from a distance, at least, the Republican Party seemed to want to stand on principles rather than personalities. And it seemed to want to work for uh, a kind of moral common good. I am seeing none of that reflected in the current fight over the speakership of the, the House of Representatives. From the ousting of Kevin McCarthy to those who seek to replace him, there's not a morally serious person among the bunch. And again, think about what McCarthy was ousted for. He was ousted for daring to try and engage in bipartisan governing work with the Democratic Party. Like, what, what are we even doing here if we're saying that there is no possibility of conversation towards a mutually acceptable solution where both sides negotiate and compromise and try and find a way forward for the good of the American people who elected these bozos. And yes, I'm using bozos here in a technical sense. They are acting like clowns. And so I'm really disappointed by what I'm seeing there. It's been a long time since I've been a Republican, but I feel because I still have members of my family people that I'm in conversation with that consider themselves to be grasping onto the frayed ends of conservatism. I feel like I still have a little bit to say in this conversation. At the end of the day, I want to see humans in, of all political stripes able to flourish, and I'm not seeing any way forward in the current situation. And the fact that there's no speaker means that with great crises happening, there's no way for any of this to be resolved in any kind of governance at the moment. Well, David, you talk about the way that McCarthy did some compromising to try to govern, but he also tried to make concessions to the far right in his party. And what I'm taking away from this is that didn't work. It did not placate them. They, it's like an all or nothing thing. Either you're on board with them 110% or they're going to oust you. And there were some calls for the Democrats to try to stop his ouster. And I don't think that was their responsibility. But it does look like the replacement we're going to get is likely going to be as bad or worse than McCarthy was. Jim Jordan is being supported by Donald Trump as the next replacement. And I think that I have real concerns about both the inability to govern now while we're without a speaker. And like you said, major things happening, the war in Ukraine and now 
war in the Middle East as well. But I'm even more nervous about who might become the next speaker because it really does not bode well for functional government. As you said, this is dysfunctional and the world is watching. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and we can't lose sight of the fact that two weeks ago on our last episode, we were talking about the potential government shutdown, which was at the 11th hour, just narrowly averted. And and that was in large part what infuriated Matt Gates was that uh, McCarthy basically found a compromise uh, to push this through. I was talking to a, a former Republican, well, former congressman, not a former Republican like David. This former congressman is still identified as a Republican who served for many terms representing a district in New York State. And he, he said that part of, I was asking him what he thought about all of this, and this was around the time of the impending shutdown. And he said that it's an embarrassment. But he said more, the, the thing that strikes him the most is that a lot of people in his own party seem to have lost the focus of what politics is all about. And he, he quoted one of these kind of far-right Matt Gates types, and I can't remember exactly which representative this was, who said that to compromise is to fail. And he said, no, 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 the whole point of politics is compromise. Nobody gets 100% what they want 100% of the time. The whole idea is to work with people from different parts of the country with different perspectives, different political positions. And I thought that was really insightful. And that, that is true. We've lost that. Um, or at least I would say the Republican caucus has clearly lost that. It doesn't mean when I say that I think that Democrats are always doing everything correctly, but I do think that there is a, a material difference now um, and has been, quite frankly, since 2016 at least between the two parties. And this is not about ideology. It's not about platform, but it's about decency and respect for the institution, respect for compromise, respect for dialogue and governance. And here we are again without a Speaker of the House with a clock still ticking, 40 days and counting until that short-term funding package expires and we may be facing a government shutdown on top of a superfluous impeachment investigation that's going to go nowhere that was part of McCarthy's concession, Heidi, that you were talking about. I, I keep thinking back to, well, what is the connection to faith as such? What is the connection to Christianity or Catholicism since that's a major focus of our podcast? And I feel like a broken record. It comes back to what we talked about two weeks ago. It comes back to the common good. It comes back to responsibility. It comes back to decency even. And, and we've lost sight of that. It just doesn't exist anymore. Well, and another piece about this that I think listeners need to have in their vision of what's going on, government not functioning is a failure of government. But from a certain standpoint of current Republican philosophy, it's a feature. If we can actually demonstrate that government is irrelevant or can actually demonstrate that government is, is incapable of doing its duty, then that, for a certain brand of the kind of far-right Republicans that we're talking about here, Matt Gates and his colleagues, that's actually a win. And this is not anything recent or new. It goes back to Ronald Reagan and government is not the answer to the problem, government is the problem, that kind of philosophy. If we tie this back into what Dan was just saying, that is completely different from when we look at Catholic documents, what government is supposed to be and how government is supposed to function from any kind of Catholic perspective. Because the whole point is there are real human bodies on the line here. People are suffering. This is not fun and games. These are not simply numbers that are getting pushed around on a spreadsheet. There are real consequences that happen when government doesn't do its duty. There are real consequences that happen when government shuts down. There are real consequences that happen when lawmakers basically show up and refuse to do their duty to their constituents or to the greater common good. It's a travesty that's happening right now. And it's a travesty not only on moral grounds, but for us Catholics, it's a travesty on liturgical grounds, because the whole way that we think about this, and Dan, you've talked about this before, Catholicism doesn't mean universal, it means suffused into the whole. And so if we're going to think about Catholics being involved in self-governance, we're trying to put our principles of care for the least of these and our principles of dignity into every aspect of how we engage in self-governance. And we are completely failing to do this and some of the people who are most egregiously failing are Catholic-identified lawmakers. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing the faith angle to this and pointing out how this directly leads to the suffering, often, of people who are already low on the totem pole. But I think the longer-term consequence, and my concern is it isn't that far away, is 
the consequences to our democracy. So when you have a non-functioning government, that may have some short-term benefit to a Republican who says, see, government is not the answer for everything, so let's cut all of regulations. But it has a longer-term effect. It allows the room for authoritarianism or fascism to fill that empty space where a functioning government used to be. And that's very concerning to me, and I think it's concerning to more and more Republicans. So to see when this happened with Gates maneuvering this this ouster of McCarthy, you did hear some Republican criticism of the party. This is a historic thing that has happened and not in a good way. And so you, you are hearing some, I think, from some Republicans that this does not bode well for the health of their party, if not for the health of our democracy. Yeah. And it's interesting. If you listen to the audio of the president pro temp of the chamber reading the the result of the vote, immediately afterwards in the background, you can hear somebody from the Republican caucus go, now what? That is the question. Now what? We don't know. And that is troubling. Like you're saying, Heidi, this it's a historical moment, but it, it also portends something too, which I, I think we can trace back. You know, hindsight, of course, is always 2020. But if we look back to the year 2020 and we look at the election, at the presidential election, and then January 6th, just a few weeks after that, and then the way that a lot of these same hard right, hard lining kind of representatives defended the insurrectionists and Donald Trump's involvement in that and behavior, it's really disturbing. So there's a way in which this is not at all surprising. And I don't know what can be done about it? I, I keep, in my mind, I keep hearing this kind of echo of that kind of shocked representative saying, now what? Well, I'm going to quote somebody surprising here or refer to someone surprising. So also in the midst of all this, Diane Feinstein died. And I know that her funeral happened in San Francisco. And I was surprised to read that Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco actually said something positive about her and specifically mentioned civility and the importance of civility. And so if we could, you know, if we can imagine a situation in which the very conservative and not always practicing what he preaches, maybe Archbishop of San Francisco and longtime Democratic lawmaker Dianne Feinstein came together and were civil to each other, then I think that could maybe be a model for where we need to go forward from here. Now, I'm not super optimistic that it's going to happen immediately, but it, it provided a little bit of hope for me in a crazy week. I, I like that. It is, uh, it is surprising. I, I wouldn't have expected that kind of maybe hopeful or optimistic sort of response from that source. But I think that's exactly right. And, and around the same time, of course, as the shutdown and then this ouster of, of the speaker, we saw not only Senator Feinstein's departure from this life, but the announcement of uh, Senator Mitt Romney that he's going to step back from running for re-election to the Senate. And in part, his comments have reflected since his announcement, but even prior to his announcement, just a continual frustration with the lack of civility, the lack of professionalism, the lack of responsibility that, that we see play out. So I'm not really sure either now what, what's to be done. It would be great to restore civility or to begin at least, I think, with some sort of acknowledgement that politics is not a zero-sum game, that the only zero-sum game that exists is a dictatorship or an autocracy. And I think that if we're serious about shared governance, if we're serious about a, a democratic society, then we need to have our, our elected leaders of all parties, of all affiliations, independents included, acknowledge that the whole point is meant to be compromised. I will say this, and, and I'm not the political theorist of the group or the armchair uh, political theorist, that I know David is. David is 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 very much a, a keener watcher of these things than I am. But I, I do think it's interesting that because of the way that our federal government is structured and it has been reduced essentially to a two-party system for the better part of two and a half centuries, we don't have the muscle memory that a lot of other democratic societies do around formed parliamentary governments, where you form a government from among different parties, right? You have to form a coalition. And we don't have that so that we have this binary, all or nothing, zero-sum game sort of mentality. And, and as long as compromise is off the table, everybody's going to lose. I really like what both of you have said in your comments just now. Heidi, your gesture towards Archbishop Cordelione and the notion of compromise and civility and listening to one another. And Dan, I really like what you're saying about 
this kind of learning to listen and to make compromise part of the very structure of how we think about democratic governance. I want to bring this back to synodality because to me, that is fundamentally what's happening right now in Rome, that what we are seeing is the church moving from an authoritarian position where it dictates, to think about what Cardinal Sarah said several months ago, it's not the job of the church to listen, it's the job of the church to teach, to move from that kind of authoritarian, I know what's best position, to a position instead that says we are all walking this way, and we have to walk this way together, and we have to find a way to make room for each other walking together. That is good for our church. It's good for our country. It is good for our interpersonal relations. So that's what we're going to be praying for here on The Francis Effect. Listeners, we invite you to pray with us in that, both for the success of the Synod on Synodality in Rome this month, but also for the care of the least of these by our government through these channels of compromise and these channels of civility. At this point, I'm sure we're, in, unfortunately, we're going to come back to this subject, but we're going to have to leave it here for now. If you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, several significant events aligned on exactly the same day, Wednesday, October 4th. It was the annual celebration of the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. It was the conclusion of the ecumenical season of creation. It marked the opening of the Synod on Synodality and Pope Francis released his latest apostolic exhortation. The document, titled Laudate Deum in Latin, which means praise God, was addressed to, quote, all people of goodwill, unquote, and is subtitled On the Climate Crisis. This text has been described as a follow-up or an updating of Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical letter, Laudato Si, on care for our common home. Significantly shorter than its predecessor, Laudato Si weighed in at more than 35,000 words, whereas Laudate Deum is around 7,000. It is also more direct and bears a greater sense of urgency about the situation of climate change. The use of crisis in the document's title reflects exactly this spirit. While some people have been critical of this document during the last week, primarily those on the political and ecclesial right wing, the immediate reception of this document has been less fraught when compared to Laudato Si eight years earlier. Dan, not only have you written books and articles about theologies and spiritualities of creation over many years, you also wrote a column about this new exhortation last week and participated on a panel of international experts and activists introducing this document to the world on the day it was released. What are some of the key themes in the text, and did anything surprise you about it? Well, like so many people, I was eagerly anticipating this text. When we first heard word of it, it came actually from Pope Francis spilling his own beans in a meeting with attorneys from around the world that have been working on issues related to climate change and climate refugees. And so I, like everybody else, was sitting on the edge of my seat waiting for this to be announced or to be published. Not sure how long it would be. Laudato Si, as you mentioned, David, is, is famously long. It's one of the longer uh, encyclical letters, certainly of, of Francis's uh, ministry. And I think it lived up in many ways to the expectations. It's, it was shorter. He, that is Pope Francis, made clear that this was not superseding Laudato Si. It wasn't promulgated as an encyclical letter, but an apostolic exhortation, which in the hierarchy of magisterial teaching falls just slightly below. So I think it's proper to think about this as a kind of an addendum. That's how I've been talking about it. Some people have been calling it Laudato Si 2, and I think that's a mistake. It's, it's meant to be added to Laudato Si and read alongside Laudato Si. And Pope Francis makes clear right in the opening of the exhortation that things have changed dramatically in the eight years since Laudato Si came out, and there was a need to address that. So there are several chapters in this text that are very kind of policy heavy. In fact, somebody commented almost pejoratively in a national publication, there was a quote saying this kind of reads as like a policy paper more than a spiritual teaching. And 
Maybe. There's a lot of data that's in here, and it's from the United Nations, it's from scientists, it's from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, among other experts. And I think Pope Francis makes clear that he wants to express the dire circumstances that we're in. And as you said, David, crisis is in the title itself. This is a climate crisis. It's not just climate change. This is not a, something that can be taken or passed. This is something that affects all of us. And so he hits right at center. One of the things that surprised me since you asked was how direct he is, in fact, um, and the urgency of the issue, and that he doesn't shy away from calling out developed, so-called developed nations, the global north, Western countries, and by name calls out the United States for its effect on the global climate crisis and its failure to do anything in response. And if I may, I'm just going to share a quote from this. This is the penultimate paragraph 72, where Pope Francis writes, if we consider that emissions per individual in the United States are about two times greater than those of individuals living in China, and about seven times greater than the average of the poorest countries, we can state that a broad change in the irresponsible lifestyle connected with the Western model would have a significant long-term impact. As a result, along with indispensable political decisions, we would be making progress along the way to genuine care for one another. So he's saying, we have to take this responsibility and ownership here and that we need to do something about it. Following our last segment, though, serious and urgent political action. I don't know if I have a whole lot of hope for that at this exact moment in the United States. And given that the United States was singled out in that way in the document, I, I did see quite a bit of pushback from climate deniers or climate min minimizers who want to instead shift the blame to China. And believe me, there's plenty of blame to go around, but the Pope was very specific about per capita, per capita U.S. Uh, consumption habits and polluting habits are what are causing the majority of this problem. But given that we were singled out by name, the response from the U.S. Bishops' Conference was, I'm trying to think of a nice word here, <laughs> moderated. I'm trying to think. We ran an article today at NCR from Jack Jenkins, and I think he used the term subdued. So it was literally two sentences. So this, and I'm going to read from it. Literally, this is what we heard from the leader of our bishops' conference. We heard that the president, Archbishop Broglio, has been on retreat with the synod delegates and is participating in the opening sessions. So as you pointed out, Dan, this all happened on one day, the opening of the synod, Francis's feast day, and this new document. And this is the statement. Archbishop Broglio and his brother bishops in the United States look forward to spending time with the exhortation in prayer and identifying ways to continue their shared witness on behalf of God's creation. That's it. They're going to spend some time in prayer with the document. Now, I get it. It was a busy day. And shout out to all the journalists who had to cover all the Catholic news that day, not to mention earlier in the week, the Pope surprising everybody with the release of his response to those dubia cardinals. But I, I thought that was disappointing, to say the least. I'd just like to highlight the part of the document that spoke to me in the strongest terms, and it's the section from paragraphs 24 to 28 on rethinking our use of power. And it starts out saying, not every increase in power represents progress for humanity. We need only think of the admirable, and admirable is in scare quotes there, we need think only of the admirable technologies that were employed to decimate populations, drop atomic bombs, and annihilate ethnic groups. And it goes on to say, contrary to this technocratic paradigm, we say that the world that surrounds us is not an object of exploitation, unbridled use, and unlimited ambition. As an American, that is exactly the message that I need to hear. Because for the last 25 years, starting especially with the Clinton administration and going forward, the more progressive parts of American political life have had this kind of fetish for technocratic neoliberal solutions. And what the Pope is saying very clearly is your, I'm thinking of the book of Isaiah, your horses will not save you. <laughs> that's, that's what we're being told. Our technology will not save us. A, a clever mind is not a heart, as the Talmud says. We're too dependent as Americans on our clever minds and our thinking that we can just create a new gadget 
to get us out of the present situation. But that's not the solution is instead, and this gets back to something, Dan, that you have said so many times on this program, that we are not apart from the world. We are in relationship to the whole of the ecology of the world. And if we fail to be in right relationship with that whole ecology, that if I may use the phrase that integral ecology, then we are losing not only our ability to survive, but our very humanity, the Imago Dei itself. And I I would invite you both to reflect on that. But for me, that was the most important part for me of this document. I think you bring up a really good point. But as an aside, that passage from Isaiah that you quoted, there's a translation by ISIL, the International Commission on English and the Liturgy from the, I think the late 80s or early 90s that has such an interesting turn of phrase there where it's, it's so short. It says, the war horse is a sham. And to me, I've always loved that. Your war horses will not save you. The war horse is a sham. The technocratic paradigm is a sham. Maybe there's a new column title in that, but I'm reminded of uh, conversations with my students this semester. So I'm co-teaching a course on environmental sustainability and theology And we had a guest presentation some weeks ago from a physicist who does a lot of work in climatology and modeling and this sort of stuff and presenting sort of the best scientific snapshot of what's happening globally right now to the, and it's just, it's horrifying. It's doom and gloom, right? And then, you know, his answer though is so informed by his, like, what do we do? The so what? He he comes from a very business sort of framework. At least those are the sort of conversation partners that he finds himself most often engaged with. And I'll never forget one of our students saying in in the Q&A portion of this presentation, do you actually believe that the status quo of capitalism is going to allow us to get out of this? And I was just like, that was one of those moments where as an instructor, as a teacher, as a professor, my heart kind of like the Grinch grew even bigger. It's like, yes, that's the question, right? And I think to your point, David, this is something Pope Francis is unequivocal about, right? And, and you'll see these attacks. We see it on the far right. People say, well, he's a communist, this, that, and the other. Well, Christianity is very clear. Paul makes it clear in the beginning of the first letter to the Corinthians. There are two ways of thinking, two ways of being. There's the way of the world and the way of God. And if you go the route of the way of God, it's going to seem foolish. It's going to be a scandal. It's a stumbling block to those people who operate according to the wisdom of the world. And so, yeah, it sounds foolish. Yeah, it sounds utopian. Yeah, it sounds this, that, and the other. But this is the world, to go back to Isaiah, that all the Hebrew prophets have announced that God says it could be otherwise. I don't want it this way. Look who's being harmed. Look what you're doing. Look at this destruction. Turn away from that and turn toward me. And so one of the other things I would just add, too, in this kind of technocratic and capitalist kind of partnership, this kind of meta paradigm uh, that Pope Francis really does call out is we need to ask ourselves, who benefits from this, right? Who benefits from things remaining the way they are? Who benefits from our unaddressing these issues? Or who benefits from the promotion of a, of a kind of quote-unquote U.S. lifestyle that continuously gets exported and that this planet absolutely cannot sustain? So I appreciate what you just said there, Dan, about there's God's way and then there's the world's way. And I was initially confused by the title of the apostolic exhortation, and not just because I don't understand Latin. So I did learn that it meant praise God. And then when I first read reports about the document and read it, and it was this very strong warning about the crisis, I thought, well, what's to praise God about? And as long as we're all quoting from the document our favorite parts, I thought that last line, last two lines, was really the mic drop of the whole thing. So after all, This is said that both of you have quoted parts of that. Pope Francis writes, Praise God is the title of this letter. For when human beings claim to take God's place, they become their own worst enemies. Wow. And that really struck me as a message that those of us in the West, but probably all of us at some point, need to hear. And like you said, who benefits? Not the world, not the majority of people in the world not everyday people. And so I think this is a message that can speak to people at this time. So with everything that's going on that we talk about in this episode and and things that are going on in the world, I think that Christian message of following God's ways and not thinking that we are God (laughs) is one that we need to hear. 
I'm so, again, glad to be in this conversation with you, Heidi, and with you, Father Dan, because raising this question of who benefits, it complements something that Upton Sinclair said in his novel, The Jungle. It's very difficult for a man to see something when his livelihood depends on him not seeing it. And when we talk about who benefits from this, we're talking about people who are going to actively not see the things that Pope Francis is trying to point out with such clarity. And so as we look at the responses of the bishops in the United States to this document, let's be very mindful of the ways in which they will try and retranslate the words into softer language. And when they do this, when we watch them doing this, let us ask the question, qui bono, who is benefiting from this? Is it that they are having certain comforts threatened by this document? And if that is the case, can we begin to name those comforts and those lines of comfort on behalf of the vulnerable and the least of these among us? Because I think that's where Pope Francis's allegiance is here. He's not interested in maintaining a certain type of American standard of living. He is interested in maintaining human beings on the planet. And to me, that is that rings out so clearly in this document. Well, and, and as good Franciscan, who happens to be a theologian interested in some of these subjects, I, I would be missing an opportunity to say that I think Pope Francis reiterates some key points here that we saw initially in Laudato Si, particularly around the intrinsic value of non-human creation beyond its instrumental value to us. I would say he doesn't go far enough. David, what you were talking about, the Upton Sinclair reference, and more broadly, we can think just like those who benefit from sexism or racism or what have you, those who are the beneficiaries of these systems that oppress others are disinclined from acknowledging those realities and are sometimes blinded from seeing them by the system itself. And I think this is also true with us as a species. It's something I talk to my students a lot about. Genesis 2 makes very clear. We are ha'adama. We are, in Hebrew, dust of the earth. We are made of the same stuff that seven verses later, Genesis 2 reminds us, when God creates other creatures, they're also created ha'adama. We are made of the same things. We're related to one another. It's something that St. Francis of Assisi, from whom Pope Francis gets his name, makes very clear when he refers to all creatures by a familial descriptor, mother, sister, earth, sister, brother, and so forth. It reminds me of an academic article I wrote about four or five years ago titled Deconstructing Anthropocentric Privilege, that I think we as a species have so deluded ourselves into thinking of our exceptionalism. Tied to your point, David, about power, just because we have tremendous power doesn't mean that we are on our own or that we can do whatever we want. And Pope Francis's point about we are our own worst enemies is that we are killing ourselves as we kill the rest of the planet because we can do nothing by ourselves. We can't even digest our breakfast without the good bacteria in our GI tract. So who do we think we are? There's a lack of sense of humility before God and before the siblings that enable us to live, both the human siblings and the more than human world too. So I think this is an urgent call. It's shameful that people are ignoring it, particularly those who are entrusted with church leadership, as Heidi pointed out. But we can all do something. I think a a good starter would be for our listeners who haven't looked at it. It's only about 15 pages long. Check it out. It's available in all modern languages on the Vatican website for free. I guess I'd just make one last point here, and that is, as a Westerner, I love creature comforts as much as the next person. I'm about to get on a plane and fly to Rome, which I uh, admit is a privilege and does have an environmental cost. What I am grateful for is that Pope Francis and others are calling attention to what is the cost of these things. We need to think about the cost and not just to ourselves individually, but to others in the world for whom we are supposed to be caring about the common good and to about and the cost to our very planet. So I'm grateful that Pope Francis smooshed this in on that very busy news week because, and I appreciate that he probably wanted to get it out on the feast day of St. Francis. And when we are in Assisi, I'm sure these are things that we'll be talking about, Dan, thinking about and praying about. So while it will be a, a while until we come back and are, are able to talk about that, we will be returning to this. So you are listening to The Francis Fact. We'll be back with our final segment next.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here today with David Dalt working behind the scenes for our new interview segment of the podcast. Today's guest is Kate McElwee, Executive Director of the Women's Ordination Conference. Kate is joining us from Rome, where she and other members of the Women's Ordination Conference have traveled to bring the call for women's full equality in the church to the Synod on Synodality. Of course, the Synod on Synodality is Pope Francis's multi-year process of trying to move towards becoming a more listening church. On October 4th, Pope Francis opened the month-long series of meetings at the Vatican, where, for the first time, lay men and women will be voting participants. The working document that forms the agenda for this series of meetings calls for discussion of previously taboo topics, including LGBTQ rights, women's roles in the church, and the sex abuse crisis. Just days before the opening of the synod, there was some surprising news about the topic of women's ordination. Five retired cardinals released a letter they had written to Pope Francis challenging him to reaffirm church teaching on the blessing of LGBTQ couples and on the prohibition against women's ordination. That same day of the release of that letter, the Vatican released the Pope's response, in which Francis expressed openness to Catholic blessings for same-sex couples and openness to further study and conversation about the question of women's ordination. Kate has been involved with the Women's Ordination Conference for 12 years, the last nine as executive director, and I should mention that she's married to my colleague, NCR News Editor Joshua McAwee. Welcome to the Francis Effect, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, let's start with this. your reaction to Pope Francis's comments. We're recording this on Thursday, so this was earlier this week. In response to those five cardinals, Now, most Catholics may recall that Pope John Paul II previously declared that the current teaching against women's ordination was definitive and said the debate was closed. But what do you make of Pope Francis's new openness? Is this significant? Right. When Pope Francis's response to the dubia was published, it was quite a bombshell. Francis challenged this definition of definitively held, which is what JP2 said, about women's ordination. And he said it's not a dogmatic definition. And while the teaching cannot be publicly contradicted, it could be studied. And so this is a significant step forward. I think often the the answer to the question of women's ordination is a simple no. And Francis didn't give that no. And so to me, this is very significant and an opening. He could have just repeated his predecessor and instead he said, yeah, we're on a little shaky ground here and it's something that could be studied. Yeah, right. As you said, calling this a bombshell is probably not too small of a a way to characterize it. Now, as the synod has gotten started, this is the first synod of bishops in which women and some laymen will participate as voting members. So I know that this is something that your group has long advocated for. How do you think that will change things? How will this synod be different from previous synods? Even in the first few days of the Synod, we're seeing how it looks different, how it feels different, not only because there are 54 women who will be voting alongside men in the room for the first time ever, uh, which is truly a crack in the stained glass ceiling, but we're seeing roundtables of discussion, uh, bishops, cardinals, facilitators all coming together as equals in a room. And so I think there's a lot that's changed, not just about the architecture, but what's on the agenda. And so my hope and my prayer is that the women in the room feel emboldened uh, in conversations and are able to really share fully their heart and their experience of, of within the Catholic Church, particularly the experience of being a woman in the Catholic Church. So there's a, lo- a lot to come. I know there's a lot of questions from journalists around the Senate right now about how much transparency there'll be. You know, I think the Vatican is really trying to create a crucible of discernment and really control this laboratory so that people can really share freely. And so I think it may be a little less transparent that uh, Synod watchers like ourselves might want uh, or prefer. But if that means that more people can share uh, an authentic voice, then I think it's very exciting, an exciting development in the whole the, the synod history. Yeah. And just to clarify, you plan to be in Rome for the duration of the synod doing advocacy work for Women's Ordination Conference? 
Exactly. Yep. So I've been here for a few days so far. We've already had a few events outside the Synod Hall. On the eve of the Synod, we held a prayer vigil at the Basilica of St. Praxedis, which is near St. Mary Major in Rome. And it's a very significant basilica for women's ordination advocates because it has a mosaic with the inscription Theodora Episcopus, recognizing a, a high-ranking woman in the early church. And so we gathered on October 3rd to hear testimonies from women around the world about their experience. And I love the diversity of the prayer vigil. We didn't tell women what to say or even know exactly what they would say. And so we got to hear from women from Australia, from Italy, from the United States, India, Spain, France. And so it was just a special moment for us and truly significant that we could carve out that space within an institutional Catholic church for women to preach and take up the question of who can be blessed and who can bless. So it was incredibly powerful for us. And I think it is a continuation of our engagement with the synodal process. We have faithfully accepted Pope Francis's invitation to dialogue. We've held listening sessions and discernment and really take it seriously. We, we have taken the, the process very seriously. And so to start with prayer was very important for us. So it sounds like you're busy there in Rome. And in addition to these witnesses that you're doing while the Synod is happening in the Synod Hall, you mentioned that your group, the Women's Ordination Conference, has been involved in the Synod all along. So participating in and holding listening sessions. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the hopes and expectations that your members might have in terms of what will happen at this series of meetings? And then, of course, we have the other set of meetings a year from now in October 24 as well. I think the members of the Women's Ordination Conference have a healthy skepticism about Vatican processes, especially those that are supposedly inclusive. And they have earned that skepticism, particularly when it comes to issues of gender. But I think there's renewed hope or even a suspended hope for some who are watching this process. Uh, I think I hope that the voices of the grassroots who clearly were calling for women's full participation in the church and the opening of ordained ministries to women are heard throughout the Synod Hall and that the Synod doesn't jump to what might be possible or convenient or easy, but really takes up the difficult question. I think that would be very affirming to the grassroots who, yeah, I think are watching on what we call the prophetic edge, hoping that their voice isn't erased throughout the, the process. So it's hard to say. I think there's a big diversity of our members and, and how they feel about the Synod and whether there's any hope at all. But surely many women around the world are watching and hoping that this is, there's movement here, that the Holy Spirit is truly present. Yeah, so you mentioned some of the other topics that might be being looked at, and we know that there are also grassroots people organizing to talk about uh, restoring women to the diaconate, which is, of course, another type of ordination. What are your thoughts about if that were to change? Is that is that something that the Women's Ordination Conference would celebrate, or are you also looking for full equality in the church where all roles of leadership would be open to women? I think it's a yes and response from us. Our mission is to open orda all ordained ministries to women as deacons, priests, and bishops. And so if women are ordained as deacons, we would see it as certainly a watershed moment in our journey towards equality, but in some ways an incomplete step. I think having women on the altar, around the altar, in formal and recognized ministries in the church would have an incredible effect around the world and hopefully would clear the way for more ministries to open to women. And so I think it's, it would be an incomplete step. And I think many of our members would not be satisfied with the diaconate alone. And so, of course, we would continue our ministry to ensure that women are included in all ordained ministries in the church. But certainly would answer the prayers of many Catholic women around the world. So let's talk a little bit about the process and what comes next. So we're in the middle of this month-long series of meetings in Rome, and at the end, it's my understanding that there's supposed to be a document or some sort of compilation of what's happened over the last four weeks and that they'll be voting on that. Is, do you have expectations about what you'd like to see in that or what would happen after that? Because, of course, then we have a whole year before the second round of meetings that will be next October. 
It's so hard to know what will happen at the end of this process. My hope is that the recommendations that come out of this first phase of the Synod process are bold and courageous and allow an opening for greater discernment in the year between the two synodal processes. But I I think there's a lot of unknown what will happen, particularly in the U.S. I think the energy around synodality at the parish level has been very minimal. And so many Catholics are worried that this will just fizzle at the local level. And that would be a tragedy, I think. And so I hope in the next, in the year between the two synodal gatherings in Rome, there are more resources and tools and opportunities for Catholics to experience synodality at the local level. I think that's the most transforming, transformative part of this process. I think talking about synodality is clunky and boring and abstract. But once you experience it, I think there's an opening, there's that sort of aliveness about it. And so I hope that in the year between the two process, the two gatherings in Rome, there are tools and, and opportunities for true engagement and that it doesn't just sit in a drawer until next October. And I hope that those recommendations are big enough for all of our dreams and our voices to be held throughout the process. Yeah, it is a clunky word, and I don't know if it's catching on. I would have branded it differently, but but we're stuck with synodality or synod. <laughs> so we're trying to educate as many Catholics as we can about it. You mentioned global representation at your events there in Rome. Some people dismiss women's ordination or some of these other issues around LGBTQ rights, etc., as something that's only of interest to Catholics in the West. Could you tell me if you think that's true or not, and what makes you think so? I think it was never true. <laughs> I don't think it was ever true that women's ordination was an issue of the global North or North America in general. I think it's a huge privilege to be able to travel to Rome and to witness and to even risk arrest for this cause. And not many of our members can come here. And so we are a delegation of almost 40 people. But those 40 people have an enormous privilege to be here. And so I think there are so many, we represent a huge number of women around the world who may not use the same words that we use when we talk about gender equity or women's ordination, but certainly are longing for equality in their local context. And so I just reject it wholesale that this issue is only uh, a part of the, the North American church. I think it's just that we have resources and mobility and we have media training and connections, but that is just a, a sliver of the representation of, of women around the world who long for their voices to be heard and their vocations to be accepted. And we did see in all the regional and eventually the uh, working document that the issue of women's leadership in the church came up in every continent. And so it is on the agenda to be discussed. So can't deny that women are raising it around the world. So I'm so grateful that you're there in Rome and representing the issues that are of concern to so many Catholics, male and female alike. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or anything else they can do as they follow along over the next couple of weeks with you? Yeah, I think just continue to follow us on social media and check out. We'll be sending videos of all of our actions soon and just continue to follow us. So we'll be here throughout the month. Um, just holding the church accountable uh, to the synodal promise of inclusion. And it's hard to know what that will look like as there are so many question marks throughout the month. So it's hard to know what will happen, but we'll be here and hopefully representing our members who couldn't be here. So it's just, a, it's a, like I said, a privilege and a huge opportunity for us. So I hope that people around the world continue to watch and pray for the success of the synod and the courage for those inside to really share their truth boldly and, and represent those of us who are often marginalized in the church. So it's a huge moment for the Catholic Church, and I am excited to be here. And I just, yeah, if, if people want to follow along, womensordination.org or at Ordain Women on most social media platforms. We can provide those links to your social media in our show notes. And you're right, I think it's hard to make a lot of predictions at this point, but certainly we can do a lot of prayers. And here at the Francis Effect, we'll be continuing to follow along to see what the Women's Ordination Conference and other groups and individuals who are at the Synod, how they're experiencing this series of meetings in October. So we will be back with more about, about Synods in future uh, episodes as well. Thank you again so much, Kate McElwee, for being with us and representing the Women's Ordination Conference. Thank you for having me, Heidi. This was really fun. Hello, this is David again. 
The full version of Heidi's interview is available on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash francisfxpod. For Heidi and Father Dan, I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode of the Francis Effect podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.